The title of uh, this morning's message is The Christian Atheist. Did you know that you can be a Christian and an atheist at the same time? Did you know that? You may ask, how so? Did you know that it's possible to do so? In fact, you can know all the 28 fundamental beliefs and still be a Christian atheist. You can sit through a series of Bible study guides, finish all 28 or 29 of them, and still be a Christian atheist. You can attend an entire uh, evangelistic series given by John Bradshaw himself and still be a Christian atheist. How so? Because a Christian atheist is someone who believes in God, but then lives as if he doesn't exist. May God help us this morning as we look at this very important topic. Why don't we pray one more time? Invite God to be with us as we look at his word. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have the privilege of coming together and worshiping. Lord, I know this message is a challenging one. Lord, I know that we've been together here. I've been here at the Mentone Church for a number of months. And Lord, I know that we need encouragement many times, but there are also times where we need to be challenged to go higher in our experience with you. And so, Lord, this morning, I know this message will be a challenging one, but I pray most importantly that you would help us to have an open heart, to be willing to say, Lord, change me from within, to be willing to say, Lord, I need uh, an extra portion of your spirit. I need Jesus in my life like never before. May this be our response this morning. And may we truly uh, make a decided, uh, make a decision uh, to be 100% and complete Christians. This is my prayer, Lord. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a man who was in the front of the church giving an offering appeal, just like Rodney was giving this morning. And as he made his way to the front to make his offering appeal before they collected the offering, he came up in a very nice suit. He had a very nice tie on. He um, had a gold chains around his wrist. He had a, a gold necklace around his neck. He had expensive rings on his finger, fingers. And he walked up to the front to make his offering appeal. And he begins his offering appeal by telling a little story. He says, a number of years ago, I was actually out only a few blocks down from the street, I was on the corner as a homeless man begging for money. You may not know my story, he was telling the church, but someone came up to me as I was on the corner and they said, why don't you come and join us for church this morning? So the man decided he would give it a shot, stepped foot into the church, and he said, as I sat down in the pews that morning, there was someone who came to the front and made an offering appeal just as I am making today. And their appeal was very simple. They said, if you are willing to give all that you have to God, he will bless you. He will make you very rich. He'll give you a lot of money. 
all you have to be willing to do is give all you have to God and just watch what he does. So the man who's now giving the offering appeal, recounting his story in the past, he says, so all I did was reach into my pocket and all I had was one measly dollar. And I thought to myself, hey, what do I got to lose? I better just give all I got. So he threw that dollar bill in the offering plate and now he's telling the audience in the present day, he's saying, and look at what happened to me. I don't know if you noticed, but when I walked up or walked into church this morning, um, you, you'll notice all these gold chains around uh, my arm. I don't know if you noticed, but the, the suit that I'm wearing this morning, it's a Calvin Klein. It's a very expensive suit. I don't know if you saw these rings on my finger. I don't know if you saw the car that I drove into church this morning. And he then says, I'm going to make the same appeal to you all this morning as was made to me. If you are willing to give all the money you have to God, he's going to make you rich just like he made me rich. And after he said that, he walked down to the front pew and he took a seat in the front pew. And I wish I had a pew to sit on, but I'm going to act like I'm the man taking a seat here in the pew. He took a seat in the pew. And as he sat down in the front, there was a lady who was sitting next to him. And she leaned over and she whispered into his ear. And she said, I dare you to do it again. I dare you to do it again, right? You see, it's easy to give all you have when all you have is one dollar, right? But it's a whole different story when you have a whole lot of money. And here was a man who was saying to the audience, he was saying to the crowd, do this, give all you have. But he was living a completely different life himself. You see, this is the picture of Christianity that many people see in the world today. You have many of these, you know, let's say um, very uh, rich pastors or gospel preachers that preach a prosperity gospel who say, if you are willing to, to, to give to my private jet, God's going to bless you, right? And this is not only a picture that we see in that stage, but we see it in Adventism and and in the Christian faith as a whole, we see many who say one thing, but do another. In fact, there was a very famous unbeliever who once said these words, and I wish I had it on the screen so you could read them with me, but his name was Gandhi. And this famous unbeliever by the name of Gandhi said these words. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And then he says, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Think about that a little bit. How many people in the world would be Christians if it were not for the Christians? Unfortunately, what he is saying is, is how many people feel. There's, there's so many people in the church today who feel this way, and I can honestly share from my personal experience and say that as a young person growing up in the church, this is how I felt. I would hear my parents tell me to follow God. I would hear my parents tell me to love God and 
to read my Bible and to say my prayers. And they would tell me that Jesus loved me and all these things. But as I would hear them say this, I would see a different picture in my home life. I would see fighting. I would see hatred. I would see arguing. I would see anger. And as I saw this taking place in my home, it was a completely different picture than what my parents were telling me. And as I witnessed that, it it truly, as a young person, led me to seek a different path for a time. And so I think a lot of times we want our, our children and we want our youth to love God, but it has to start with us. It has to start with our example and how we demonstrate our faith in our lives. This is something that not only exists uh, back in or exists in our day, or it's something that existed in, in Gandhi's time, but this is something that existed in Jesus's time. And so let's go ahead and read our scripture reading one more time together this morning. I want to invite you to go with me to Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 7 to 9. Matthew chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 7 to 9. Matthew chapter 15 and verses 7 to 9. Give you a moment to be there. All right, the Bible says in Matthew 15 verses 7 to 9, the Bible says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, These people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, Jesus calls the Pharisees a very ugly word that we don't like to be called. What is that word, friends? Oh, help me out this morning. What's that word? Hypocrites. You see, the Jews, the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. They were the ones that everyone looked up to. They were the ones who kept the faith the best. They were the ones that, you know, were to be examples to everyone else. And Jesus looks right at the religious leaders and he says, you are hypocrites because while you profess God with your lips, you don't possess God in your heart. And there are many of us who have that experience, sadly, and I am guilty of this as well. We profess Jesus and we praise him with our lips, but we don't possess Christ in our hearts. You see, one thing I've learned in the short time that I've been a Christian is that it's not easy, it's not hard to learn the truth intellectually. You know, truth, it makes sense, right? When something is is shared and it's the truth, it, it makes logical sense because it's true. It's the truth, right? When you hear something and you have a, a maybe a, a better understanding of something, let's say in the word, you know, we share this, this message, the, the message that we have as, as Adventists, we share this message and, and our message, it makes sense. It makes intellectual sense. But God is more concerned than just about an intellectual knowledge of truth. While it's important to know the truth and while it's good to, to study and to intellectually know it, God is also concerned. I would even say more concerned with how we live out that very truth in our lives. Does it impact us? You know, we can, be, we can know so much, but still be nasty, mean Christians. And so, I truly believe this morning, friends, 
that only the Holy Spirit can enable us to live out in the life what we know in the mind. And the truth is, is that none of us have the power to live this out on our own. Because no man can change themselves. Only God can change our hearts to live out the truth in our lives. But you know, while God may not need our help in working it out, He does need our permission. He does need our permission in allowing Him to do this work in our lives. And you know, the good news is, is He has a very beautiful, there's a very beautiful promise in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1. Go ahead and turn there with me this morning. I wish I had it on the screen so we could just read it, but go there with me. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1. Notice a very powerful and beautiful promise that I want, to, I want you to see with your own eyes. It's a promise that God gives to anyone this morning that may feel like they are living a double-minded Christian atheist lifestyle or feeling that they cannot live the truth that they know in their heart. They cannot live it out in their life. Isaiah 59 verse 1 tells us that the Lord's hand is not shortened, then it cannot save. Can you say amen to that? It is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Oh, friends, I'm so thankful that when we come to God and we bring him our condition and how we feel that, that our condition is, I'm thankful that God's ear is not too heavy that he won't hear us. I'm thankful that he will hear our prayer and that his hand is not too short that he cannot save. Just as he stuck his hand in the water and picked Peter out of the water, he can do the same if you feel like you are in this state this morning. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God can do that. But we need to see our condition and we need to see our need and we need to be willing to come to him and ask him to help us. What kind of life do you feel personally you are living this morning? I want this to be a question that you think personally in your life. I think a lot of times, I'll just say this, a lot of times when we hear messages like this, we think that they apply to other people. We say things like, man, I wish, I wish my brother was here to hear this. He needs that. Or I wish my uncle was here to hear this message. But the truth is, friends, is your brother's not here and your uncle's not here. God didn't arrange that. But the funny thing is that you are here. And so many, I found that many times the messages we so often want others to hear are the messages that we ourselves need the most. So this morning, what kind of life are we living? Are we Christians or are we Christian atheists? Jesus spoke in another time about a very similar situation. And I want to focus on this because I think there's a beautiful lesson we can learn in Matthew chapter 23. If you can turn with me to our next Bible text, Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to look at verse 25. Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to look at verse 25. The Bible says in Matthew 23 verse 25, Jesus is once again speaking to the Pharisees here. And he gives them another rebuke that's very similar to Matthew 15. But in this example, he, he likens them unto something. He gives their condition an illustration. And I want you to see this illustration because it's a very powerful one. Matthew 23, verse 25. The Bible says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you what? 
Hypocrites. There's that word again. For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. Now, I want you to think a little bit for a moment about this illustration that Jesus gives the Pharisees. He says, you, your spiritual experience is a lot like a dirty dish. It's a lot like a cup. Now this morning, my brother was able to bring this for me and I'm so thankful for this water. And it has water in this cup this morning. But I just want you to imagine for a minute that this cup right here isn't filled with water, but it's filled with, let's say, your favorite juice. I'm going to go ahead and go with grape juice. So imagine this is filled with grape juice, but also imagine that this is not a disposable cup, but it's a reusable cup, and it's filled with grape juice, and we decide to take a drink. And after we take a drink, we, uh, we leave it for a little bit, and then we come back, take another drink, and we finish the drink in the cup. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a young kid and I had a, uh, a cup of juice, I always tried to get the last drop in the cup. I don't know if anyone can relate with me on that. But I would sit there and just try to get it. But, but for some reason, you can just never quite get that last drop out, right? It, it's almost impossible to do that. It's, it, it, if you put that cup down, you're always going to see a little bit of residue there from the juice that you just drank. So imagine this. Imagine I finish that cup and then I walk over to the, um, the, 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 the drying rack for the dishes and I put... Uh, before I put it on there, I turn on the water and I, and I start to rinse the cup only on the outside. And I grab a, um, a sponge with some dish uh, soap on it and I begin to scrub the outside of the cup alone. I'm scrubbing it really hard, very trying to get the grease out on the outside. And I'm just scrubbing the outside so hard. And then finally I put it under the water and and I, and I wash it only on the outside, and then I put it on the drying rack to dry. Let me ask you a very simple question. Is that dish dirty or clean? But I washed it. I scrubbed it real good, didn't I? So is it dirty or is it clean? You still say it's dirty, right? Why? Because the whole thing isn't clean. And in fact, I think you and I would both argue that it's more important to be clean where? On the inside for the next person who uses it, right? And, and this is the example that Jesus gives the Pharisees. He says, you Pharisees, you make clean the outside of the cup. You clean yourself up on the outside. In other words, you dress nicely. You put on a suit and tie. You look great on the outside. In the morning when you come to church, you're the person that has a big smile and says, Happy Sabbath. You, you look so polished and nice on the outside, but on the inside, on the inside, you are lacking. You are filled with something else. You are filled with something else. You see, they did not allow God to change the inside of their lives first. You see, my friends, do not misunderstand what I am saying this morning. 
It is not bad to smile and say happy Sabbath. It is not bad to look good for God. It is not bad to have an external change in your life, but God wants you to have an internal change first, and then naturally the rest will follow. In fact, if you were to take a cup and I were to wash it on the inside and I were to put this cup under that running water as the water would fill all the way up to the top of the cup, if I were to leave it under the running water, what would eventually happen to the cup? It would start overflowing, right? And then naturally, automatically, the cup would start being cleaned on the outside. You see, we've, we've a lot of times done it in reverse. We have the external first, and then we say the internal maybe along the way eventually will follow but God wants to change our hearts first. And as He washes us from within, as we begin to have that internal experience, it begins to be visible on the outside. It begins to show on the outside. God wants to, to change us from within with His water of life. And naturally, this will follow to the outside. Uh, this morning... We're looking at the Christian atheist. And I felt like we could not look at these examples without uh, looking at an example in the book of Revelation. But I'm looking at the time and we have, I believe, six minutes. Is that right? Give or take. I don't know if I have time to look at this example in Revelation. But you know what? I'm going to just skip to to the verse that I was going to look at. Go with me really quickly if you can, because I want to try to squeeze this in in time. Revelation 3, verse 15. Go with me really quickly to Revelation 3, verse 15. And uh, we all know who this is speaking of. We all know about the church of Laodicea. I know we've probably heard many sermons on this topic before. But in Revelation 3, verse 15... Jesus speaking to the book or to the church of Laodicea, which, as we know, is representative of the church living at the very end of time before Jesus returns. In Revelation 3, verse 15, Jesus speaking directly to this church says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would because you I would that you would be cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. So Jesus, speaking to the church of Laodicea, says, I wish you could be cold or hot. I wish you could either be one way or another. What is the problem with the church of Laodicea? What is the problem with the church of Laodicea? Okay, yeah, we just read it. Neither cold or hot. Okay, yes. Yes. You see, they are on the fence. They don't make a decision to be cold or to be hot. They don't make a decision to be cold, to live a, you know, extremely whatever you want to call it, however you want to phrase it, worldly lifestyle or, or whatever, have nothing to do with God. And they neither want to be on fire for the Lord. Hot for the Lord. It's just like in 1 Kings, we're not going to turn there for time's sake. It's just like in 1 Kings 18, verse 20, where the Bible says, or Elijah speaking to those on Mount Carmel says, 
um, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. You see, the problem was that they could not make a decision. Who would they follow? And after Elijah makes this appeal, you should check it out and read it on your own time. But in verse 21, the next verse, the Bible says that the people answered Elijah, not a word. They didn't say anything. They could not give him an answer. They couldn't make a decision. They were lingering with one word, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They didn't have an answer for God. And this is what the Laodiceans have. They don't have an answer for God. They don't have a word to give Him. God is asking us this morning, are you sold out for me? Are you going to live for me? Are you going to live your, the, the, the truth that you know in your life? Are you going to show it by the way you live? But many Laodiceans, the response is nothing. My friends, I challenge you this morning to make your decision to be fully on the Lord's side. To give yourself 100% to Him. Because it's so easy to play the part of church. It's so easy to look nice, put on this suit. You know what? I may not be that good at it, but it's pretty easy to, to put on a tie or to tie a tie. You know, it's easy to even come up here to the front and say a prayer. It's easy to even come up here and preach and read a couple Bible verses. It's actually not that bad. You see, what I learned was that as a young person in God's, in, in the church, when I was growing up, is that I could fool a lot of people. I could fool my parents into thinking I was like some angel. I could fool my pastor because I knew all the answers. I was a smart kid that knew the Bible answers. I could fool him into thinking I was an extremely spiritual kid. I could fool my closest friends. But what I came to realize was that at the end of the day, when it was all said and done, there was one person I could never trick or fool. And I think I know, I, and God knows our hearts. I'm thankful that even though God knows us, even to the depths of our being, He still fully loves us. Even if we are fully known by Him, He still fully loves us. I'm thankful that He still chooses to love us. And He still longs to give us grace and help in our situation. But we have to begin being real with God. We have to start being real with Him. We need to start coming to Him and saying, God, I need Your help to not live a double-minded, half-hearted, two-faced kind of life. Lord, I need you to give me an experience on the inside where you wash me and cleanse me from within. Like the psalmist, Lord, would you create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me? Would you not take away your Holy Spirit that I desperately need? Lord, will you come 
and change my heart, oh God. This is the prayer we need to pray every single day, my friends. And as we close this morning, I'm going to read one quote and a story, and we're done. It's a quote by a very famous Christian author who wrote, um, he wrote a lot of different things, and maybe you don't, um, maybe you, you, you know him for one kind of thing, but he, he also wrote a lot of other Christian books as well, some interesting books. And C.S. Lewis once said these words. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. In other words, if this right here is false, if it's fake, then we shouldn't be here. There's no, there's no reason, there's no importance to us even being here. Christianity is of no importance if it's false. Then he continues and says, if it's true, it's of infinite importance. Right? So if this thing is real... If Jesus really came and died for our sins on Calvary, if he's really the solution to our lives and the problems that we have in our lives today, then, then this thing is of infinite importance. And then he finishes the quote by saying these words. I don't want you to forget. He says, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Did anyone hear that this morning? The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I know I struggle with making Christianity moderately important many times. I have so much more I could share. I didn't realize that we would be running out of time here, but I'm going to close this morning with a story that, um, that really impressed me when I heard it. And I'm going to close my iPad so I don't keep going. There's a story of a group of pastors, or I should say future pastors. They were studying in the seminary, and they were finishing up their final year in the seminary, and they came to the final exam of the last class in their program. It was on... A, I think it was on a Tuesday, and their final exam was going to be on Thursday. And the teacher told these past, future pastors, these students of his, he said, this Thursday is going to be the final exam. And whatever happens, this exam is going to impact your grade greatly. In fact, for many of you, if you don't pass this exam you're not going to pass the class. And you're going to have to repeat this class and, you know, have to come and, and take another year till you become pastors. And so this is a very important test. Make sure that you are here at 8 o'clock sharp because it is, you're only going to have until 9 o'clock to take your test and you're going to need every minute for your test. If you show up at 8.05, I'm not going to give you an extra five minutes, so you better be here on time. So everybody got the message. Thursday morning comes around. All the students are there sitting in their seats, pencils sharpened, erasers ready, 
ready to take the test. They look at the clock and it is 7.58. Everyone is sitting in their seats. Eight o'clock starts and there's one important person that's missing. Who do you think that is? The teacher. And they thought to themselves, they began to talk to themselves and they said, man, he told us we need to be on time. And here he is, the one being late. He better give us some extra time. 802 comes by, 803 goes by. They're wondering, where is this guy? Finally, 805 goes by and the door opens and in walks the teacher's assistant. And the teacher's assistant goes up to the front and says, I don't know if you guys heard this, but the, uh, I don't know if you got the memo, but the, 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 the test is not going to be taken in this classroom this morning. It's going to be taken in another classroom on the other side of campus. You still only have until nine o'clock to finish your test. You better get over there quick. Everybody grabs their bags. Everybody starts running over to the other side of campus and it was a larger campus and so they had to cross the sidewalk there on the main road and as they're running across getting close to the sidewalk there was a man on the corner of the sidewalk and he was there a homeless man and he was waving his hand at the first student who was running and he reaches up his hand and he says hey do you know where I could get some water around here and the student looks at him for a second and he says, hey, I'm really sorry, man. I wish I could help you, but I'm late for a test. And he runs by him. The next student runs by him. The third runs by him. And as the students are running by this man, some of them are looking at him and they're making this face where they're saying sorry just by their face. There are some who uh, don't even look at the man, don't want to make eye contact because they know it would be awkward, so they ignore the man, and every single student runs by the homeless man on the corner. They get into the classroom, they take their seats, they look around, and still no teacher. The door finally opens a few minutes later, and in walks the teacher, dressed like the homeless man. He walks up to the front of the class and he says, I'm sorry, but you've all failed the test. You've all failed the test. True Christianity, friends, is more than writing some right answers on a piece of paper. True Christianity, Jesus isn't gonna say at the end, he's not gonna ask us for a little quiz to fill out on paper. He's gonna ask, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was naked, did you clothe me? In other words, do you live the things that you know in your life? I know this morning there may be many of us who can resonate with this experience. I know I can. And my prayer for us is that we would open our, up our hearts to God right now and we'd say, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me, Lord, to live the truth that I know daily in my life. Help me not to just say it, 
with my mouth, but live it and mean it in my heart. I challenge you this morning to allow God to come in and to make you a 100% sold out Christian follower of Him. How many of you this morning want to say, Lord, I need you to help me to be a 100% committed and complete Christian and live my life that way for you? Amen.